Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with prayer. Avinu Malkin, our Father, our King, Lord, we delight uh, in your name. We delight in your spirit. Lord, we say that we are so grateful that you have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. You are calling us upwards and higher, and you are uh, giving us a renewed sense of, of a purpose by your Spirit. And Lord, even though these days are growing darker and things around us seem to be falling apart, our hope is anchored in the Messiah Yeshua. And for that reason, Lord, we don't, like the world around us, we don't, uh, uh, as it were, lose our cool. We don't, we don't, um, we don't. Uh, stress out. We don't uh, uh, throw our hands up in, in, in desperation. Uh, we know, uh, we basically know the end of the story because we've read the end of the book. And so, Lord, as we continue to put our trust in you on a day-to-day basis, as we live our life by faith like Habakkuk 2.4 tells us, and Romans 1.17 tells us, and Galatians 3.11 tells us, Lord, uh, the righteous person is the one who lives by faith, and so we'll continue to put our trust and our faith in you and thank you, Lord, for bringing us together and giving us an opportunity to share with one another, um, to grow with one another, to learn from one another, to uh, lift one another up in prayer and edification. I thank you for the responsibility of being able to teach the book of Galatians, and I pray that you'll continue to give me uh, um, an insight uh, to the text and um, uh, give me the... Um, the discipline to continue to press in as a student and as a teacher and to share the things, uh, share with others the things that I'm learning. So thank you, Lord, for this awesome responsibility. Uh, be with us tonight as we study. Uh, give us an enlarged capacity to understand the truth and uh, give us uh, the ability to retain the things that we're learning. We'll be careful to praise you, Lord, for all of these things. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Well, uh, I'd like to welcome everyone out to another week in Exegeting Galatians. As I mentioned earlier, my name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tunavant in Thornton, Colorado. You're welcome to join us each Shabbat, each Saturday, if you are if you live in the Denver area or can make it up north to Thornton. Um, pastor Mark McClellan is the senior pastor. And uh, you won't find me there because I live in South Korea. But uh, I'm a long-distance member, and I'm happy to uh, call that congregation my home, having uh, resided there locally for about 10 years or so. 
Uh, this is Exegeting Galatians week, I want to say we're in week 64, and we have been plugging along through the commentary that is available on my website at tetzetorah.com, T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. Also, it's available on my congregational website, graftedin.com. Uh, just click on the homepage at graftedin.com, and along the very top there should be a little menu section where you can click on the More Teaching section. Scroll down through there, and you'll find the Galatians notes. The written commentary is a little short of 200 pages, and we have been plugging along week by week with audio recordings about 45 minutes to an hour long each week, and that's uh, thus we've been going for a little over a year, I suppose. And um, if you're not able to make it each week live via Skype, well then, just uh, follow along on the written. I'm sorry, follow along on the website to access the audio recordings. After recording them and editing them, usually a few days later, I park them on my website, uh, which also creates a link from the Grafted In site. And also you can find them on the iTunes store. Just do a search for my name, Ariel Hanavi, or do a search for Galatians commentaries. Just the word Galatians itself should work. I don't think there are too many uh, Galatians commentaries out on the on the uh, iTunes store, and I'm one of the few messianic ones. In fact, I, I think I'm one of the only messianic ones. So, um, without further ado, let's open with some liturgy. Uh, for those of you who are with me live tonight, uh, you should be able to see on the screen, I've got Genesis chapter 12 pulled up, and we're going to read just the first three verses tonight. Uh, this is going to be part of the discussion as we move into Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. And I think, uh, by, just by looking at the notes, I should be able to finish both of those verses tonight, since they're not as technical as uh, the last few verses have been. So let's read the English, which uh, this is actually the Jewish Publication Society 1917 version, the JPS uh, the English that you're seeing there on the right side of the screen. And then the Hebrew corresponds to the, to the, uh, um, the Westminster Leningrad Codex. So, let's read the English and the Hebrew as well. The English reads, uh, verse 1, Now the Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto the land that I will show thee. Verse 2, And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and be thou a blessing. Verse 3, And I will bless them that bless thee, and him that curseth thee I will curse, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Alright, let's look at the corresponding Hebrew, which is right on the left side there. The Hebrew says, Vayyomer Adonai el Abram lechlecha me'artzecha umimoladadecha umibet avicha el ha'aretz asher arlecha Verse 2 says, And verse 3 says, End. Okay, this is a whole sermon in and of itself, the blessing that's pronounced here, uh, God calling Abraham away from his native land and native family group and uh, to a place that Abraham didn't really know. Just get up and go is basically how we translate 
Lech Lecha, get up and go get thee out of thy country. Um, let's turn now to the Apostolic Scriptures, the New Testament, the New Covenant, whatever you want to call it there. And uh, I'm using the uh, ESV version, and we're only going to read verse... 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, which is the section that's framed by the chiasmus that we're going to be talking about, this little literary device that we've been borrowing as we're looking at the notes here, looking at the, the passage. Galatians 3, verses 9 through 14 out of the ESV reads, uh, So then, those who are faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Or of course, that's a quote from Habakkuk that we mentioned in our prayer. Um, verse 12. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. And we talked about that last week. That's Leviticus 18.5. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And that, of course, is pulled from Deuteronomy 21, I think, verse 23. And then verse 14, So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. All right. Uh, let's see. Give me a moment. Before I read the Hebrew, let me... I'm sorry, the Greek. Let me see what Skype's doing. Looks like we've got some more students who are joining us. Um... Give me a moment. I'm, I'm going to jump over to Skype, and it's going to make my screen go black for a second, so don't don't worry about that. Oh, okay. Looks like we do have some more students there. All right, well, great. Um, those of you who just recently joined, um, I just want to make sure you remind yourself to mute your microphone when you join. Great. Oh, <laughs> one of my students is clarifying who the other person is. Well, great. Well, I hope that uh, everyone can still hear me. And now everyone should be able to see my screen as well. It's nice to have uh, more students join. Okay, uh, let's jump over. If you can see my screen, let's jump over to the Greek and read that. This will be the SBLGNT, the Society of Biblical Literature, Society of Bible Literature, uh, Greek New Testament. Let me see if I can make the font a little bigger for you guys. Okay. All right, let's jump down to verse uh, 9, like I mentioned earlier, and um, basically it should be this section that I just highlighted in blue for you. That's what we're going to read out of the Greek, okay? And where Greek starts right there. All right, the Greek says, Hostoi oi ek pistios eulogunti, sunto pisto Abraham. That was verse 9. Verse 10 starts out, Hostoi gar ex ergon namu, asin hupakataran asin gegraptai, Gar hati epikataratas, pas has uk emene, tois gegramenois in to biblio, tu namu tu poiesai auta. Verse 11. Hati de in namo, udes de kai para to theun delan, hati ho de kaias ek pistios zesetai. Verse 12. Ho de namas uk estin ek pistios al. Ho poiesas auta zesitai in autois. Verse 13. Christas hemas exigorison ectes kataras tu namu genamenas huper hemon kataran hati gegraptai. 
Epicataratas Pas Ho Kremamanos Epicuzulu. And the final verse, verse 14. Hina es ta ethne e eulogia to Abraham genetai en Christo Jesu. Hina tain epangelion to pneumatas labomen dia tes pistios. Okay, and that'll be our Greek reading for tonight. And let me just turn back to the uh, ESV in case we need to reference it a little later on. All right, let's turn to the notes. For those of you in the live class tonight, you should be able to see on my on your screen right now, I've got my uh, written commentary PDF version pulled up. And we're right in the middle of page 125, which is where we're going to start with Galatians 3, looking at the two verses, 13 and 14 tonight. But let's get a running start, just for context's sake. Let me scroll down and just show you this little chiasmus here that I just highlighted. Remember, a chiasmus is basically a kind of a, a literary... Uh, uh, what should we say, a literary uh, pattern, uh, kind of a textual pattern that you might find in, in, in a text where it forms a kind of a mirror image uh, that are that's kind of centering around a central, uh, folk, uh, 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 kind of framing a central point in the text. Usually a chiasmus has kind of a, an odd number so that uh, the, the outer edges point gradually towards the inner edge, forming kind of a peak, a, a focal point a zenith, as you will. In this case, the chiasmus has six points, and we've identified this by the word Abraham in Galatians 3.9, which corresponds to Abraham in Galatians 3.14 that we're going to read about later on tonight. And then the next innermost point uh, is the word curse, which corresponds from Galatians 3.10, which matches its other counterpart, the mirror counterpart, as a curse from Galatians 3.13. And you can see, this is available. This is, by the way, this chiasmus. This is um, this is evident in both the English and in the Greek. So it's not something that you will only find in the Greek or only in the in the uh, English. It's in both languages. And then the two innermost points, which is kind of the zenith, the focal point of the chiasmus, uh, the chiasm, is um, the word live, L-I-V-E, which is Galatians three eleven and Galatians 3.12. Those two verses are the innermost points. So it kind of focuses your thoughts, Your it kind of forces you to focus on the innermost two points, almost as if Paul is working towards a crescendo in the middle, right there at Galatians 3.11 and 12, and then uh, um, kind of pulling back again, zooming back out. So it's kind of a zoom-in feature and then a zoom-out feature. As you zoom in, you get you stop and you examine whatever whatever's right there in the middle, and then you pull out again. Um, whether or not Paul intended that to be the case, I'm not sure. Uh, since it is in the original Greek, it's possible he could have done that. But nevertheless, uh, Bible students and teachers the world over have been recognizing these types of, um, uh, of features in the text. And they're not just here in Galatians, they're all over the Bible. So it's kind of a neat little thing to notice. All right, so in order for us to um, get a context of what we're going to be looking at tonight, which is Galatians 3, 13, and 14, which if we're using the chiasmus as our kind of guideline, uh, in other words, if Paul had a, a structure to the way he was writing the letter, then basically he started talking about Abraham and the curse. I'm sorry, he started talking about faith in Abraham way back in uh, Galatians 3, 9, which is why we read it. And then he throws down this challenge, this... this, this um, uh, set of scriptures to challenge the prevailing, uh, the prevailing 
religious view of his day that was um, threatening the Galatian uh, congregation from uh, veering off course theologically and 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 uh, from a social perspective, and he and he does that by introducing this idea that there's a curse attached to all those who are going after this other gospel, and we saw that curse in three nine, and then he moves into um, his. Uh, uh, Bringing in some scriptural passages to show how that the viewpoint of the Galatians, uh, the viewpoint of the um, the opponents, whom we're nicknaming the influencers, instead of Judaizers, and I'll tell you why in a moment why I don't like that term Judaizer. But um, his opponents are trying to influence; uh, they're trying to really get the Galatian congregation to come on board with what appears to be the the, the traditional view of of relationship to God. Uh, the traditional understanding of covenant membership, etc. And um, to that end, Paul's going to use Scripture to his advantage. He's going to try and show them that, look, this is not the way it should be. This is not the way God has... Um, uh, it's not the way that God designed it to be. You guys are misusing uh, the, the Scriptures. And he's going to use these three or four Scriptures uh, to prove his point, Habakkuk 2.4. He's going to use Deuteronomy 27. He's going to use uh, uh, Leviticus 18.5, and then he's going to use, right now, he's, we're going to see that he's going to use uh, Deuteronomy again. He's going to jump down to Deuteronomy chapter 21. So he's going to use all these verses in a way to show the uh, influence that influencers that they have some of the right players, but they have the wrong understanding. So in order to do that, let me just um, create a segue, as it were, from last week's commentary into this week's commentary. I'm going to back up just two paragraphs real quick, and I'm not going to explain them per se, I'm just going to read them. And this will form a segue so that you can understand where we're going to, uh, what we're going to be discussing tonight. So we got those two live um, points that were found right in the middle of Paul's argument from Galatians 3.11 and Galatians 3.12, which are his quotes from Habakkuk 2.4, which is the first live, right? The just, the just shall live by faith. And then we got the second live, the word live is found in Leviticus 18.5, the man who does these things shall live by them. And Paul's going to work off of these two scriptures to prove his theological point. So let me just read my commentary. Uh, this part is a, a repeat from last week, but I, because I rewrote this a few weeks ago, uh, I didn't actually even read this into the microphone. So let me just read it for you. Within the smaller live context, forming the two innermost points of our six-part chiastic structure, we can easily imagine that um, this part, this this idea that live and live, um, may well be the heart of Paul's pericope. Because in Leviticus, the writer Moshe describes the lifestyle, that is, the living, of an existing covenant member is characterized by obeying the law spelled out by the Torah. This, of course, is similar to the righteous man living by his faith or faithfulness in Habakkuk 2.4. So we got live and live there. And we could play with the word live and turn it into a participle if we want and make it living. Um, so Paul just you, just quoted Habakkuk uh, uh, 2.4 in Galatians 3. In my commentary, I say that in both verses, faithfulness, that is right living, flows from genuine faith. Right? So, this is Paul's challenge to his contemporaries of his day. Paul refers to the Leviticus position from 18.5 as clearly described in the previous verse, as meaning when we read it from the ESV, it says, now it is evident, meaning uh, some versions translate it, now it is clear, meaning that anyone reading the Torah should be able to understand and not misunderstand Leviticus 18.5, that, that God is not talking about um, becoming a covenant member in Leviticus 18.5, it's something else. 
So let's keep reading my commentary. The influencers, these are the, the name of the people that I'm calling Paul's opponents. Most commentaries are going to call them the Judaizers. I, 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 I don't like that term Judaizer for two main reasons. One of the reasons is because um, historically, according to most, uh, the, the best scholars today, the term Judaizer wasn't the name of the people pushing the view, meaning it wasn't the name of, the, of Paul's opponents. It was actually the, t the label that was given to the ones who were going at, chasing after the, uh, the, the popular view of the day. In other words, it was the name of the covenant member wannabes. In other words, it was the name of the Gentiles. It was a, kind of a nickname that the Gentiles were given uh, because they were trying to live like Jews, which is what the term eudaitsein means from the Greek, to live as a Jew, to live your life as, as the Jews live. So Judaizer was kind of a name of a wannabe person, not the name of the persons who were pushing the view. Do you guys understand the difference? It was the name of Paul's, um, it, was, it would really be the name of the Galatian students that were reading Paul's letter. They would be, the Gentile ones would be the ones that would be labeled Judaizers. In other words, they were called that by the Jews because they were basically Jewish wannabes. So that's one main reason why I don't like the term Judaizer when labeling Paul's opponents because Paul's opponents weren't the recipients of his letters. It was these other people who were teaching the false gospel, these other people who were supposedly sent from James. But the other reason why I don't like the term Judaizer is because um, today it's given a kind of a negative spin, a kind of almost a, um, uh, an ethnic spin, a, a, a kind of a racial epithet, as if the term Judaizer is something that's negative, a, a very pejorative spin, you know, like calling someone a Pharisee. And when we use the word Judaizer, since it literally means to live like a Jew, it, it kind of sounds racially charged, in my opinion, as a Jew. Sounds, uh, as, it sounds like as if it's negative to live like a Jew. Sounds like if it's a bad thing to live like a Jew, which is what the term Judaizer means. Why would it be bad to live like a Jew? Hello, Jews live like Jews. Jesus was a Jew. Paul's a Jew. So to live like a Jew, because you're a Jew, is the right thing to do, Right. I'm a Jew, I live like a Jew, so wh why would I consider living like a Jew a negative thing? Uh, it, it just doesn't set right with me as a Jew to, to hear this phrase Judaizer used in such a, a negative, pejorative way, especially when it's coming out of the mouth of people who aren't Jewish, which is predominantly today uh, non-Jewish believers, i.e. Christians. So I really, I really don't suggest we use this term Judaizer. I think we should, number one, it's not historically accurate the way that people are using it. Number two, it's kind of offensive to Jewish people. Uh, so let's, let's use a different term. I use the term influencer, which is a little more neutral, because they were trying to influence the Gentiles to take their position. You guys on board with me? Okay. All right, so I say right in the middle of my commentary, the influencers must have believed that the law is out of faith. Remember, Paul says the law is not of faith last week. We looked at that, Galatians 3.12. The law is not of faith, but the man who does these things shall live by I'm sorry, the, um, yeah, the, rather, the man who does these things shall live by them. Well, in order for Paul to say that, he must have, he must have understood that the influencers were already believing that the law is of faith. And um, this word, law is of faith, with the word law carrying nuance one that we looked at above, which included a focus on ethnicity for both Jews and Gentiles, right? The law carried this idea of a, a law for Jews only. In other words, the Torah was for Jews only in the first century. That's the way they, they interacted with the law. Likewise, the word faith in this, in this slogan, laws of faith, the law is of faith from the Jewish, from their perspective, the influencers must have conveyed both the concept of covenant membership when they heard the word faith 
as well as faithfulness, which is obedience and maintenance in relation to Torah commandments. Remember a long time ago we talked about how the works of the law is this idea of keeping the law because we're Jewish and keeping the law in essence to maintain our position within the covenant as Jewish members of the covenant. That's how this idea of works of law was played out in Paul's day. So when Paul comes along and says the law uh, is not of faith, he's challenging their position. The law is of faith for the influencers must admit basically, quote, Jewish identity, that is physical circumcision, vindicates covenant membership, that is justification, which then warrants continued obedience to Torah in order to maintain covenant membership earned either at birth or by conversion. So that's what I interpret as the law is of faith for the influencers. But then Paul says, rather, the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does these things shall live by them. So Paul challenges this idea that the law is of faith. With his slogan, the law is not of faith. What can that mean? Here's what we learned last week. For Paul, however, even though his opponent's theology included most of the right verses with most of the right players, sadly they had reached most of the wrong conclusions. In its broadest application, as understood by Paul, the law is not of faith, right? This is this is our lift from Galatians 3.12. The law is not of faith. This is the first clause. This term that Paul uses, the law is not of faith, conveys the idea that, quote, the law is not a salvific document. End quote. Plain and simple. God didn't give the law for that purpose. Quote, the doing of the law was not designed to subsequently produce salvific faith in God. End quote. That, at its broadest sense, is what Paul must mean when he says the law is not of faith. However, and that would have been nuance too that we talked about above. However, there is a smaller, what I call immediate sociological context for the way he is probably spinning this phrase, the law is not of faith. And I say in my commentary that the immediate context of his argument was against the sectarianism of his day, the, 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 the Jewish-only nationalism that was pervasive in his day, this idea that all Jews and only Jews shared a place in the world to come, that quote from the Talmud, uh, Sanhedrin uh, 10.1, I believe it is. Um, so... Uh, he, he was using this phrase, the law is not of faith, to challenge this idea uh, that the Torah was for Jews only and that covenant membership was a Jewish-only concept. And this means, um, so as I read my commentary, it says, within the immediate context of his argument against sectarianism, this phrase, the law is not of faith, likely means, quote, physical circumcision, that is, works of the law, do not or does not count towards forensic justification, which is read here as genuine covenant membership by the influencers, end quote. You guys understand my my meaty paraphrase of this idea, the law is not of faith? Just, be, just merely being a Jew, whether by birth or by conversion, does not count towards God declaring you as justified or forensically justified, which today we would call salvation, but in their day they used the term genuine covenant membership. All right. So alternately, with all those, all that information in front of us, we could understand this phrase basically to be Paul's challenge that uh, after reading Habakkuk 2.4 in Galatians 3.11, and then reading Leviticus 18.5 in Galatians uh, 3.12, the very next verse, after quoting both of those verses, Paul expects his readers and opponents alike to come to the same conclusion that he came to. And what was that? We're near the top of page 125 in my notes. This is very important as we go into tonight's study. Both circumcised Jews and uncircumcised Gentiles as faith-centered covenant members 
followed in faithfulness to Torah. That was one of the main tenets of what he was teaching as well. However, this is really an alternate reading in my fact, in, in my opinion. It's alternate because it may in fact be only a subtext at this point. I don't think Paul is trying to emphasize the idea that Jews and Gentiles must follow in faithfulness to Torah. Because one of the primary problems facing the, the, the Gentile uh, uh, believers in that day was that they were confusing the real purpose of Torah obedience. And so Paul's going to have to kind of um, give some caution to them as to how they should really be keeping Torah. It's because of the misuse and misunderstanding of Torah obedience by the influencers that Paul's probably not just going to come out straightforward and tell them, just just keep Torah, kind of the way that we do it today. Uh, in fact, I think he's going to really uh, put some of the... Um, obedience to Torah on back burner status. He, we know he does that with circumcision later on when we get to Galatians chapter 5, we're going to see that. However, as, so I say in my commentary, this alternate reading where we just see Paul telling the Jews and Gentiles that since they're already believers, just go ahead and keep, you know, continue keeping Torah. That's, I think, a subtext at this point. I don't think that's his main point. So I say, however, we've already addressed the primary indictment of Paul's argument, of course, against the influencers in our exegesis above. And what was that? the version of physical circumcision that the influencers were teaching, in Paul's opinion, was a, quote, law of the flesh, end quote. And, as such, God did not recognize it as faith-centric. See my point? Their version of circumcision, which was centered primarily on turning a person to a Jew if he wasn't already born with that, uh, that status, their version of circumcision was perverse, in Paul's opinion. And in Paul's mind, their distortion of law, and I put the word law there in quotes, their distortion of law was, quote, not of faith. And that's why he says it that way, the law is not of faith. Your version of law, your distortion of law is not accurate. Okay, that being the segue to tonight, I'm just going to read down through the notes first. They're not very long. I'm just going to read them, and then I'll go back and hit whatever highlights that I think we should uh, look at. And I think that'll be the easiest way to follow along. Okay, so here we are. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. So now we know that Paul has quoted these passages at his, as his proof text that genuine faith uh, leads... I'm sorry, genuine faith is born out of faith in God. Genuine covenant membership, I should say, is born out of genuine faith in God and not out of the works of the law, but... Now that we know that as individuals, how then, in the mind of the Galatians, how does this link us to the faith of Abraham? Because remember, Paul already mentioned Abraham in Galatians 3.10. How does this, I'm sorry, Galatians 3.9. How does this link us, number one, back to Abraham as Gentile believers? And number two, what do we do about the curses that you just mentioned, Paul, in Deuteronomy, that you referenced from Deuteronomy chapter 27, and now you're going to bring up another reference in uh, from Deuteronomy 21. What do we Gentile believers do about the curse? Because if we read the passages correctly, the curse is pronounced on people who don't keep doing the Torah. And if the, the, the influencers tell us that we have to keep the Torah, but you're telling us, no, the first thing we need to focus on is faith, and the, the, the obedience will come later. And what do we do about the curse? So Paul's going to turn to that, because I think that's the natural way to understand Paul's progressive thought here. What do we Gentiles do now that we know that we're covenant members by faith? What do we do about what the Torah tells us about the curse? All right, I think that's where Paul's going to turn. Galatians 3, 13 and 14, we'll read it one more time out of the ESV. Quote, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us 
For it is written, quote, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, end quote, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith, end quote. All right, let's unpack it. Here's my comments. Since we are nearing the end of the chiasmus, allow me to repeat what I stated in the comments to 3.10. Three, uh, Galatians 3.9, in my opinion, begins what is likely a six-part chiastic structure of verses, of verses, with 9 and 14 forming the outer two points, what I call the bookends, verses 10 and 13 forming the next inner layer, and verses 11 and 12 forming the innermost two points. Galatians 3.9 and Galatians 3.14 are linked by the topic of Abraham. Galatians 3.10 and 3.13 are linked by the topic of the curse of the law. And Galatians 3.11 and Galatians 3.12 are linked by the presence of the word live, which is the Greek word zesitai. All right. The introduction and conclusion to the theology developed in the chiasmus of Galatians 3.19-14 is presented in Galatians 3.14 and is indicated by the Greek conjunction hina. That's why he says, therefore, or so that, um, in other words, he brings all of this to a conclusion so that we can kind of see where he's, where he's been going and what he wants them to, to realize. Um, so it's presented by this Greek word, Hina, translated in order that or so that. And he uses it twice, if you look there in the English, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, so that we might receive. So he uses Hina twice. Um, the basic six-part chiasmus looks as such, and you can see it right there on the screen with me. I'm not going to read over it again. I already went over that. Let's just go and jump into the commentary. We're near the bottom of page 125. In my opinion, there are golden moments when the best interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. Meaning, Scripture should always be the best interpretation for us, but sometimes it's necessary to look at other commentaries, to look at other, um, to get other opinions from other believers, because I believe that is how God speaks. He does not only speak through His Word, He speaks through other teachers, He speaks through the church itself, He speaks through the members of the church, the leaders of the church, He speaks through friends and family members to help confirm the things that we are reading in the Torah. But sometimes we don't even have to consult other people's opinions. We can just turn to another passage and actually have one passage interpret the second passage, which is really nice, and I think that's what's going on here. Galatians 3.13, in my opinion, seems to find a parallel in chapter 4. So allow me to quote Galatians 4.4-6 through 6 from that location, which reads, quote, But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full right, rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, end quote. Okay. The impact of Christ redeeming those who name his name for salvation from the curse of the law in 3.13, in my opinion, bears a striking similarity to 4.4 and the first part of 4.5, which reads, quote, to redeem those under law. Right? So we have, we, we even have some of the same terminology. We have that um, curse of the law and under the law. We shall explore the furthering parallels to 4.4 4 through 6, when that passage arrives below in my commentary. But for now, let's focus on 3.13 here tonight. That we have previously defined this term, quote, under the law, in my commentary, in some contexts as a position that's reserved for those whose hearts have not received messianic regen regeneration, I think is key to understanding Paul's phrase, quote, the curse of the law, end quote, right here. So we got under the law and we got curse of the law, and I understand, in my say in my commentary, 
to be tandem phrases. That is, they work together, they work side by side with one another, and they help us to understand uh, each other. They, they, they help, one helps the other uh, to be properly understood. That is, I say that the person who lives, quote, under the curse of the law, end quote, surely lives, quote, under the law as well. In other words, just follow me for a moment. In my understanding, both phrases actually describe a person of ill favor and eventual punishment by God. Under the law, in some passages um, used by Paul, speaks of existing under the condemnation that Torah pronounces against persistent sinners. That's how he uses this phrase, under the law. Thus, in the economy of the Torah community of ancient Israel, to live under the curses instead of under the blessings was to be recognized by God as living in sin and disobedience to his mitzvot, to his commandments. Uh, so we see that Paul uses it this way sometimes, and we're, we'll go back and talk about it here in a moment after I finish reading. In other places of Paul's letters, I go on to say in my commentary, we're near the top of page 126. In other places of Paul's letters, under the law seems to simply refer to Jewish identity. You can reference Galatians 4.21, for instance, that we're going to look at later on. Not tonight, of course. Surely Moshe instructed the Jewish people that obedience invited God's blessings, while continual disobedience invited God's curse. Let's look at footnote number 120, and you'll see that I'm referencing Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28. And I did that because Paul himself references those verses in Galatians 3, in this little section that we're studying, right? He brings in Galatians 20, uh, 27, chapter 27, when he talks about curses to anyone who does not continue in everything that's written in the book of the law to do them. So, uh, continuing into my commentary here, right here in the middle. However, when, when, when reading about the curses of the law, we have to remind ourselves that Messiah did not merely redeem our physical lives from diminishment of blessing when we place our trust in him. Um, it's not just the physical diminishment of blessing if we fail to perform the words of the Torah, like we read about in the curses in Deuteronomy. Yeshua actually redeemed both body and soul from what we recognize as the ultimate curse pronounced upon the individual who failed to graduate to genuine lasting faith in the giver of the Torah, a redemption spoken of in legal terms throughout the apostolic scriptures that we study. Make sense? So in my opinion, the plain sense of the verse that we're reading here, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, the plain sense of the verse is not confusing, confusing, right? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the Torah. But what does that mean? He did not redeem us from the Torah itself. See the careful distinction? It's very popular in today's Christian circles to hear it taught that Jesus set us free from the law. And oftentimes, Galatians 3.13 is brought into the discussion to prove such a, a point. Christ redeemed us from the curse of law. See, Christ redeemed us from having to keep the Torah. But we need to stop and read what Paul wrote. He didn't say Christ redeemed us from the law. He said Christ redeems us from the curse of the law. So let's keep talking about that. In my commentary, I go on to continue. But in what way did Messiah become a curse for us? Right, Because that's what Paul says, by becoming a curse. And then he quotes Deuteronomy. Quite simply, I see it this way. Yeshua was put forth as the propitiation for our sins when he died on the cross. Right, We're talking about substitutionary atonement, which of course is not only well known to Christians today, 
but it was also well known in the time of Paul. This is not a thought that was invented by the Jewish people. This is not um, some form of systematic theology that Paul invented, this idea that one would substitute for the many, or one would substitute for one. Either one for one substitution, like in the case of an animal sacrifice, or the case of one man dying for the many, or one animal dying for the many, as in the case of the Yom Kippur sacrifice. So, substitutionary atonement was nothing new to Paul. Um, Yeshua was put forth as the propitiation, as the kaparet, if we want to use the Hebrew term. It was, it, he was put forth as the sin offering, the sin bearer. And when he, when he died, he bore, as it were, our sins on the cross. When he died on the cross, he became the representative of the sinners. I say in my commentary, as the sinless sacrifice, the Father deemed it necessary to place the corporate sin of the world upon his Son so that his righteousness might be vindicated in the biblical truth that, quote, the wages of sin is death, end quote. We know that, of course, uh, if we look at footnote uh, 121, that's Romans 6.23, that most of us have been probably brought up uh, memorizing the wages of sin is death. So Jesus had to die because as the as the... As the federal head of humanity was Adam, who brought sin into the world that we read about in Romans, then Jesus, as the federal head of the new humanity that would um, be brought about as a result of him dying, Jesus t uh, bore the, the, the sin of Adam and then thus became the, the new Adam. And we can read about that in Romans. To be sure, I'm sorry, I say in my commentary, the word um, cursed here, in our quote that Paul's using, the word cursed, in the quote from Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 to 23, if we go back and read that, uh, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree, end quote. The word cursed there only stands to reinforce the Levitical notion that the sacrifice truly bears the weight of the sin that is imparted to it. The sacrifice becomes cursed. And so we see that Yeshua bore this curse himself. And, um... In other words, it doesn't just say that he's not blessed. It doesn't say that the blessing is withheld for the person who is hung on a tree. It actually says that he's cursed. Understand what I'm saying? It's, it's a specific technical term that is very specific to our understanding of the Deuteronomy passage. To be sure, as I say in my commentary, if there was found no substitute for the party guilty of a capital offense in the case of, of the Deuteronomy passage, then this man was to be hanged as a sign that God had deemed him cursed. He wasn't actually hung so that he would die, like Yeshua was. In the Deuteronomy passage, he was actually executed first, and then he was hung as a symbol that he was cursed. So it wasn't the hanging on the tree that, that caused his death, like Yeshua. Nevertheless, the fact that he was hung on a tree in Deuteronomy was an indicator that he was cursed of God, that he was rejected of God because he was paying for his crimes. He, he had no substitutionary atonement on his behalf. He was found guilty, and um, he, for whatever reason, was not uh, willing or able to uh, put forth a substitutionary sacrifice. So this person was cursed, and this is how, why we can see that Paul creates this, this instant association between Yeshua because by the time of the first century... Um, the word, the, the passage in Deuteronomy was understood to refer to uh, actually crucifixion. And this was by the Jews, not by the Romans. Meaning, the, the, this phrase of being hung on a tree was already understood by the Judaisms of Paul's day. We could read about this in, for instance, the, 
the temple scrolls that were unearthed in the 11th Qumran cave uh, in, I think it's 11Q, temple scroll. It talks about how that, um, <clears throat> how about that, how that the person who's hung on a tree is actually the person who is hung on the tree, and it uses the definite article, uh, it's the articular noun there, for the tree, meaning the crucifixion stake itself. Um, so, basically, uh, what I say in my commentary is, if there was no substitution for the party guilty of a capital offense in Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, then he was to be hanged as a sign that God had deemed him cursed. In the mystery of the Godhead, Yeshua, the sinless Lamb of God, became the object of such punishment on behalf of those who name his name for salvation. And he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. We read that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. That's my footnote to 1.22. As I keep reading, reading my commentary, I go on to say, as a pertinent fact, I'm sorry, as pertinent a fact as this is for every sinner, understand what I'm saying? This is the large picture that I'm describing, how Jesus is the sacrifice for our sin. This is a kind of a very general theological position that we could draw from this particular passage. However, I like to remind you that because this is a very carefully reasoned argument, and it's smack dab within the context of Paul's very carefully what I call idiosyncratic argument against the influencer's notion that the works of the law is what was necessary to, br to bring about a covenant membership among the Gentile believers. Because this is Paul's carefully reasoned defense, I think there is likely, however, a more contextual and specific first century use of the phrase, quote, curse of the law, end quote, that's found in 313, where, where it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He did redeem us from the curse in a general sense, but I think there's actually a more uh, a narrow view that we could also look at. And uh, we're going to let James D.G. Dunn bring that explanation out, which I'm going to quote at length here for my commentary. So bottom of page 126, top of page 127. Here's James D.G. Dunn, quote, Verses 13 through 14, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse on our behalf, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And we see that Dunn is reminding us that this is from Deuteronomy 21 and 23 with a kind of a reference to, kind of a nod to 27 verse 26. And perhaps uh, Paul is doing this what we in fashion, what we might call Gezerah Shavah, uh, where we have a word from one verse that reminds us of a word from another verse. In other words, one, one term from one verse hints at a, a term from, from another verse, and then they kind of bring the two together in kind of midrassic fashion. This is kind of one of the rule, uh, seven uh, interpretive rules of Hillel, uh, Gezerah Shavah. So uh, perhaps Paul's doing that here, uh, kind of Pesher style or Gezerah Shavah or something like that. Uh, Dunn says that in order that the blessing of Abraham might come to Christ Jesus, might come in Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in order that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He finishes the verse there. Now let's look what Dunn has to say, and I think it's pertinent for us. And this is basically the bulk of, of the rest of my commentary, so I'll read this, and then I'll read my summary, and then we'll go back and we'll kind of midrash a little bit, okay? For maybe the next 10 or 15 minutes. The thought, this is Dunn's words, the thought clearly refers back to verse 10, as the formulation of the scriptural passage to align it with the scripture quoted in verse 10 confirms. Paul must intend the, quote, curse of the law, end quote, 
to be understood in light of verse 10, that is, to say the curse of the law is not simply the condemnation which falls on any transgression and on all who fall short of the law's requirements. Remember, Paul quoted, Cursed is anyone who does not confirm to all these words of the, of the law. In verse 10, Paul has, uh, Paul has it in mind, Dunn says, that the specific shortfall of his typical Jewish contemporary, that is, the curse which falls on all who restrict the grace and promise of God in nationalistic terms, like the Jews of his day were doing, all who treat the law as a boundary marker to mark the people of God off from the Gentiles, like the Jewish people of Paul's day were doing, all who give a false priority to ritual markers, such as circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath. So, Dunn goes on to say that the curse of the law here in this passage in 3.13 and 14, in his opinion, has to do more specifically and primarily with that attitude of the influencers which confines the covenant promise to Jews as Jews. In other words, this curse of the law, in, in Dunn's opinion, is Paul trying to teach that this curse falls not merely on all humanity, like we just talked about a moment ago. This is true, but more specifically... Paul would say, Dunn tries to tell us, that it falls on those who live within the law in such a way as to exclude the Gentile as Gentile from the promise. You understand my narrow, um, Dunn's narrow application here? Dunn says that this is confirmed by the second half of um, Paul's formulation in verses 13 to 14, where he says, the purpose of Christ's redemption from the curse of the law is precisely what we would now expect, viz. In other words, because Yeshua uh, uh, redeemed us from the curse of the law, in, in Dunn's understanding of what Paul's trying to say, the effect of, of Jesus redeeming us from the curse of the law is not this broad sense that we're set free from sin. Instead, to use Paul's own words, the purpose of Christ's redemption from the curse of the law is precisely the extension of the covenant to the covenant blessing to the Gentiles. Did you catch it there? The curse which was removed by Christ's death, therefore, was the curse which had previously prevented that blessing, the blessing of Abraham, which had previously presented, prevented that blessing from reaching the Gentiles. So the curse of the wrong understanding of the law is what Dunn's trying to get us to understand is what Paul's primary thrust here that Jesus' death set us free from. Not just this broad, generic curse that was pronounced upon all humanity because we all belong to Adam. Yes, this is true. But what Dunn's trying to challenge us with is that there's a strong possibility based on the textual cue that Paul provides for us by um, mentioning the Gentiles here, there's a strong possibility that Paul had in mind that there was this idea that the curse of the law was somehow bound up together with this idea of this Jewish nationalism, and therefore this restricted view of the law, this this distortion of the law that I mentioned earlier, this this ethnocentric Jewish exclusivistic view of the law, also uh, uh, drew the curse of the law. And that's what Dunn's trying to say. So Dunn goes on to conclude, it was a curse which fell primarily on the Jew, which we can read about in Galatians 3.10, and later on we're going to study it in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 5. But it fell primarily on the Jew because he was the one who was primarily 
touting this view. The Jews in Paul's day were the ones who were primarily towing this traditional party line that Jews and only Jews shared a place in the world to come that we read about in the later Mishnah at Sanhedrin 10.1, and that you can um, basically gather from today's Judaisms today that the Torah is a Jewish-only document, the law is for Jews only, etc. So, the curse of the law primarily fell on the Jews, but, however, Dunn goes to conclude, Gentiles were affected by it so long as that Jewish misunderstanding of the covenant and that Jewish misunderstanding of the law remained dominant. As long as that was the dominant view in Paul's day, then the Gentiles were um, subsequently affected by that as they interacted with the God of Israel and the law of Israel. Understand what I'm saying? So Dunn goes out to conclude it was that particular curse, the curse of the misunderstanding of the distortion of the law, it was never, because there was a distortion of law in a Jewish-only terms, it drew the attendant curse that was pronounced in the law, and it was that curse which Jesus had actually brought deliverance from by his death. End quote. So that's Dunn's um, commentary. If you look at footnote number 23, James D.G. Dunn from Jesus, Paul, and the Law. I'm holding the book in my hand right here, and I lifted that from page uh, 228 to 229. So my commentary, I say in summary. In summary, then, we can now easily see, I say easily, <laughs> right? We can easily see that Galatians 3.14 forms the conclusion reached by the, feel, by the logical and theological flow of the first six points of the chiasmus, which was 3.9, 3.10, 3.11, 3.12, and 3.13. 14, where Jesus, where we see that, 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 the, this, the, the crescendo is this, um, and we can see that in the Greek when it, where it says hina, which is usually translated as that in order that or that so that, right? And um, we see then in, in my chiasmus, give me a second to make sure that that's where we're going, yeah. Um, we see then uh, that 14 is basically the natural conclusion because Paul says, so that, so that, he says it twice, and here's what I say is basically a conclusion, I'm almost done with my commentary here. We're near the t bottom of page 127. Here's what I say as a conclusion. Yeshua brought both Jew and Gentile out from under the curse of misusing the law for nationalistic purposes. That was the primary sociological view in the first century. You understand what I'm saying? So, he, he brought us out from under the curse of the law that which pronounced against people who were misusing law in their restrictive nationalistic purposes. And how did Yeshua do that? He suffered outside the gate. If we look at footnote number 124, we can see this phrase, outside the gate is lifted from Hebrews 13.12. So Yeshua suffered outside the gate. What does that mean? In my opinion, basically, I say in my commentary, he basically, as a Gentile sinner, suffered. He suffered outside of the gate of the of the Jewish community. Outside of the gate means outside of the Jewish community. He suffered as a Gentile. He suffered as someone who was who was who was extradited outside of the Jewish people. He was excommunicated, as it were, when he suffered. And I think that's the the scope of the midrash that the writer to the book of Hebrews is trying to to put forth as well when he explains that Messiah suffered outside the gate. Therefore, we need to also go outside the gate so that we can fellowship with him. So essentially, Yeshua suffered as a Gentile sinner. So in that sense, he became the representative of the Gentile sinners as well as the Jewish sinners. You see my point? And as a cursed man who hung on a tree for his crimes, right? Paul's linking Yeshua midrastically, Gezerah Shavah, to 
of the person in Deuteronomy 21-23, the man who is hung for his crimes as a guilty person, Yeshua becomes that cursed man. He hung on a tree for his crimes. Thus, I say in my commentary, in this sense, Yeshua destroyed that bad ideology, that bad first century idea that the Jew was that the, that the Torah was for Jews only and covenant membership was an exclusively Jewish concept. Yeshua destroyed that bad ideology, which had the effect of creating hostility between Jews and Gentiles. This type of Jewish only nonsense. The only thing it proved was that it, it caused Gentile peoples to be viewed as second class citizens in Paul's day. In fact, Unfortunately, it's still going on today, right? So, I go on to say in my commentary that by doing so, by, by Yeshua doing this, this bad theology that Yeshua destroyed by, by being hung on a tree, uh, this particular theology uh, created hostility between Jews and Gentiles, and it limited the divinely intended multinational scope of God, of God's Torah, of God's covenants, and of God's blessings. You see what I mean? That's why I keep using this term that basically the Jewish people of Paul's day were essentially holding God, God's Torah, God's Spirit, God's Covenant, God's blessings. They were basically holding them hostage. And anyone who wished to enjoy or partake in God and the subsequent Torah, Covenants, Blessings, Spirit, etc. had to essentially uh, pass through this door known as conversion, ethnic conversion, legal Jewish status. And that's why it was such a egregious thing to Paul. Paul being the, the, the missionary to the Gentiles, the apostle to the Gentiles, this really grinded Paul's socks, right? This really made him heated to say that the Gentiles were second-class citizens. So Paul, in my opinion, as I read near the bottom of page 127, Paul masterfully describes this redemption where Jesus set us free from not only the generic, um, the general uh, uh, curse of the law pronounced against all of those who follow in the the uh, in the in the um, in the physical lineage of Abraham, I'm sorry, of of of, of, uh, of Adam. Not just that, but Paul also describes how this redemption actually brings the Jew and the Gentile back together again. So this is where this is why I think um, Dunn's explanation about <clears throat> about uh, the result of Jesus' death and destroying the curse is intricately linked to this idea of bringing back together the two who were who were formerly separated but now need to be brought back together. So let's read Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, and then uh, we'll, we'll see how this is basically saying the same thing I think Dunn's trying to bring out in Galatians 3, 14. Quote, this is uh, Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace. He, Yeshua, is our Jew and Gentile. He's our peace who has made us both, who's the us both? It's us Jews and Gentiles, right? He has made us both one. Look at that unity. He's made us both one and has what? Broken down in his flesh, that is, by his, by his death on the cross. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What is the dividing wall of hostility? It's this Jewish-only nonsense that existed in the first century and today. It's this idea that you have to be a Jew in order to be a genuine covenant member. It's this works of the law that are described as covenant membership that begins when one is either circumcised at birth or circumcised as a, as a, 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 a proselyte. That's this dividing wall of hostility. And he did this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, the dogma, if we want to read the Greek. Not by abolishing the law itself, because the law itself does not 
create an enmity between Jews and Gentiles. The law is properly understood. It was the it was the distortion of the law into into Jewish only nationalistic terms that created this this dividing wall of hostility and this this ordinance that was expressed as halacha as as this dogma that the Jewish people were holding on to this this um tradition of men that was created from the law of God. In other words, it was the distortion of Torah that created the the dividing wall, and Yeshua divi- Yeshua abolished that particular distortion. He didn't abolish the true and genuine law of God. So, he uh, broke down the in his flesh <clears throat> the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might do what? Create in himself one new man in place of two. Notice that there were two men, which would have been the Jew and the Gentile, but instead he created one new man, which is a one new Torah community that is united under the banner of Yeshua. So making peace, right? There's the destruction of that hostility, right? He makes peace between Jew and Gentile. And Paul goes on to say that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So we can see that in Ephesians 2 here, that Paul actually brings in both ideas of Yeshua's death, being uh, Yeshua dying as the guilty person of Deuteronomy 21-23. Yeshua dying, Yeshua's death brought about not only the redemption that that Adam's offspring needed because we were we were slaves to sin and we were we were inheritors of death, right? The wages of sin is death, and because our federal head Adam uh, passed that uh, uh, heritage down to his offspring then Yeshua not only set us free from that, but Paul also in in Ephesians explains that Yeshua's death accomplished something else. It not only set us free from uh, the the curse of death that was pronounced in the law, but it also, which is basically the ultimate curse of the law, but it also set us free from a curse of misusing the law for nationalistic purposes. The misuse that the Gentiles were, were in danger of falling into if they would have listened to the, the poison of the influencers and actually went through the conversion process and became Jews so that they would supposedly become covenant members. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? That there was this this big push in the first century to make the Torah a Jewish-only concept, this idea that Israel was a uh, Jewish-only entity, and that all Jews and only Jews were the ones that were spoken about, where it says all Israel shares a place in the world to come. Jewish-only Israel shares a place in the world to come. Therefore, if you want to be counted as as righteous, if you want to be counted as dikaiosune in the Greek, if you want to be counted among the blessings of Abraham and the children of Abraham, if you want to model after the faith of Abraham, if you want to be counted as 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 blessed, etc., etc., you must first become a Jew. So I say in conclusion in my commentary, put plainly, the Gentiles should not have been treated as second-class citizens in God's economy. They should not have been treated that way in the first century, and I'm here to tell you today, people, they, should, they still shouldn't be treated that way. You, you visit some Messianic congregations and this nonsense is still taking place. We got Jewish leaders today who are Messianic, right? Messianic Jewish leaders of today. Some are still saying that the Torah is not for Gentiles. It's a Jewish-only document. And then if the Gentiles wish to participate in Torah activities, then they, they're divinely invited to do so, or at best, it's something that they can do only if the Spirit leads them to, but they have no God-given mandate, as it were, 
to do some of the things that, that are supposedly Jewish-only commandments. And so this, this misuse of Torah extends down to our day. Unfortunately, uh, in my opinion, some of the Messianic Jewish leaders of the day have not fully understood this central message in Paul. And they're not understanding that, that Paul would not want Gentiles to be thought of as kind of second-class citizens. So I go on to say that the blessing of Abraham that we read about, that we read about in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, right? Through you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. We know that this is ultimately referring to the quintessential son of Abraham, which of course is Yeshua. So the blessing of Abraham, I say in my commentary, must extend to the Gentiles expressing faith in Yeshua. And how does it extend to them? As equal covenant members in Israel. Not not second-class covenant members, equal covenant members. And if it doesn't do that, Israel is not Israel, and the gospel is not the gospel. And that's the way Paul would have it. The, the, the message of the influencers was another gospel. Remember, we read about that in the first chapter of Galatians, a pseudo-gospel, another gospel, a false gospel, the one that if anyone comes preaching that, he is to be cursed. Even if he or another, someone or an angel from heaven comes teaching another gospel, let them be accursed. This other gospel is dangerous because it is a gospel that excludes Gentile covenant membership on equal footing. To turn a Gentile into Jew, supposedly, to uh, to turn a Gentile into Jew for the for the purpose of supposedly creating a genuine covenant member is to say that as a Gentile there is a deficiency in their ethnicity. You see what I mean? Paul doesn't see that Gentiles are deficient because in Paul's mind God is the God of Jews and of Gentiles, and he says that explicitly in, in what is it, Romans 3.30 and 31, somewhere around there. So I say in my commentary in closing that is, uh, uh, the blessing of Abraham must extend to the Gentiles expressing faith in Yeshua as equal covenant members in Israel, or else Israel is not Israel, and the gospel is not the gospel. Therefore, Dunn's explanation seems to fit more contextually with the th- situation facing the first century Judaisms, and with Paul's reason for writing the letter to the Galatian congregations. End. All right. So I basically took up all the time of the uh, of the teaching tonight to read through the commentary and explain it. I don't think I need to go back and hit anything. But what I will do is um, I'll go ahead and close the commentary in prayer. For those of you who are with me in the live study, stay with me. I'll entertain questions and comments for the next 10 or 15 minutes or so. Uh, but let me close in prayer. For those of you who did not join me live, but you're listening to this commentary after the fact, you're listening to the MP3 or you've downloaded the podcast from the iTunes store, uh, you're welcome to join us each week uh, from 7 p.m. to around 7.45 or 8 p.m. Central Time uh, each week on Skype for Exegeting Galatians. And um, if you join us live, then you can stick around for the live after chat, which does not get recorded and uploaded to iTunes. It's exclusively for the live participants, okay? All right, let's close. Abba, bless your name, and I thank you for teaching us afresh the the relevant truths of the book that you would have us to understand. For indeed, Lord, we are seeing over and over again that your words are indeed quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it is because we hide your words in our heart that we don't sin against you. Help us, Lord, to continue to press in, to press into your words and to your truths, and to not only be hearers of the word, but to be doers as well, like you taught us in the book of Romans, that we know that it is those who have um, works that follow after faith that are the ones who demonstrate genuine faith that we read about in the book of James. It's not just 
um, the hearers of the word, but it's the doers of the word. And it's, and it's faith without works that's dead. We don't want to have a dead faith, Lord. We, don't want, we want to walk in your ways and talk of your ways. We don't want to speak of them as we sit down, as we rise up, as we lie down when we rise up, uh, like we read about in the Shema, Lord. So give us an earnest desire. Fill us with your spirit like, you, uh, like you've uh, challenged us in Ephesians. Give us a heart to do good and to know your will and to have our minds transformed by the renewing of the word so that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God like we read about in Romans chapter 12. Lord, give us a heart to do your will. Give us the opportunity, Lord, to share the good news with those around us. We know that your words have not passed away because you said so, Lord, in, Ro- in Matthew chapter 5, that not one jot or tittle will pass away until all has been fulfilled. And therefore, as we look for an opportunity to, to go into all the world and preach the gospel like we read about in Matthew in uh, chapter 28, the, the Great Commission, give us the open doors and ears uh, to hear people that would we'd be waiting to hear the good news, uh, those who, are, are, um, who have been uh, uh, contemplating um, receiving that good news, prepare their hearts so that they can and hear and, and understand and receive the, 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 the seed that is sown upon their heart. Uh, Lord, give us the holy boldness that we need to go out and share. Uh, thank you for healing us. Thank you for raising us up as family members, as communities, and those who are rallied around the banner of Messiah Yeshua. For indeed, it is his name that we will proclaim unashamed. And thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. Bring us back together next week refreshed and ready to study again. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, love him to serve the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the lord's commands and decrees that i am giving you today for your own good to the lord your god belong the heavens even the highest heavens the earth and everything in it yet the lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them and he chose you their descendants above all the nations as it is today Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>